Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Doug Barth, a site reliability engineer at Stripe, and Evan Gilman, Doug's former colleague from PagerDuty, who is now working independently on Zero Trust Networking. Evan and Doug are also co-authoring a book with O'Reilly on the topic, appropriately titled Zero Trust Networks. We discuss the problems with traditional perimeter security models, rethinking trust in a networked world, and automation as an enabler. Enjoy the show. Okay. Thanks, gentlemen, for joining me on the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, thank you. So before we dive into some of the more specifics around the topic for today, which is Zero Trust Networks, give me a little bit of background about you two uh, working together, how you all started working together on this. Sure. Do you want to go first, Doug? Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, so Evan and I met at uh, PagerDuty. We were both on the operations team um, early on at the company. Uh, prior to me joining PagerDuty, I used to be uh, live in Chicago. I was a software engineer and then went from working at a big company called Orbitz um, to a startup in Chicago and you know, got to learn a lot of different technologies and uh, responsibilities and roles like one normally does in a startup. Um, and that got me really interested in like production systems and, and operating them. So when the PagerDuty opportunity came along, I picked up my family and moved out to the Bay Area and, and joined up. Oh, all right. Yeah. And Evan, what about you? Yeah, so uh, Doug and I met there at PagerDuty. I, I was previously a network engineer at the University of Miami uh, and then moved out to do ops and success stuff at PagerDuty. And um, while we were working there, we had the need to kind of build a system that spanned multiple clouds but provide you know the same high level of security that you're used to with a single one. Um, and so we kind of started building out this network, uh, you know, which was devoid of any kind of like network control devices and things like that. And um, you know, together we built this thing and we did a few talks on it and uh, gained some interest. And here we are. Excellent. Okay, so let's get into the let's set up the framework of what we're going to talk about. So. We're talking about something called the you all are calling zero trust networks. But to get there, we're going to deal with what most people are familiar with, right? Which is like traditional network security architectures, perimeter models, right? I'm no expert in this. Um, thankfully, you two are writing a book <laughs> about this <laughs> for O'Reilly, you know, uh, coincidentally. And so I was reading up a bit more on that. I, I feel like I know a bit about what, uh, you know, sort of perimeter models are um, in the sense that you have different networks in zones contained by fi a firewall or firewalls. And so there's, and there's sort of a different level of trust sort of to external versus internal networks. And this seems to be the prevailing model still. And we'll get into maybe what the issues are there. Um, like, how did you start moving away from that on your end when you started working on this stuff? Sure. So, um, you know, we kind of had a problem where, you know, we, we didn't have that ability at our disposal. Um, the way that, that our infrastructure was striped across multiple cloud providers, we, we had no way to kind of build private networks the way most people do and put perimeter firewalls and things like that. Some of our providers didn't even have the concept of a private network at all. And so the architecture just kind of didn't really work out for what we were trying to do. Uh, so we needed a new approach. And um, we kind of took this uh, very, very host-oriented um, approach where we would instrument all the hosts and do strong authentication authorization um, across the board rather than rely on network devices to do like typical network ACLs and things like that. Okay. And I realized for my for our listeners, I, I'm not doing a good job of what I was going to try to do, which was lob questions at each of you individually. So that was, and I can't even keep track of you. I can't see you guys. I'm listening and I'm not good at who's who yet. So who was that? <laughs> that was Evan. <laughs> okay, Evan. I'm getting good at this. Okay. So Evan, for you all, it was, it was, um, it was an emergent property of, of the business you were, you all were dealing with or dealing with at PagerDuty. Um, 
and and not most people aren't necessarily in that situation. So Doug, maybe talk to me a little bit about what the what are the issues that you all have identified with the sort of traditional perimeter model, and then we'll kind of break that down for folks who might be looking to move away from that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'd say, like in my mind, the biggest uh, issue with the perimeter model is it tends to encourage uh, system administrators to define as few perimeters as possible. I think that's like the big most common thing is you know you have your firewall. And you say like anything out on the internet, that's, you know, the big bad folks and anyone on the inside, well, they're trusted. And, you know, maybe down the line, we'll like further segment this and add more firewalls. Maybe if we're really rigorous, we might do per host firewalls. But the reality is most people say like, you know, it's on my trusted network. It's trusted interactions. Why should I, you know, go through that effort? What's the value? Um, And I think the value or the, the issue with that thought process is that we keep seeing time and time again, people get behind the perimeter. And once they get behind the perimeter, they can just go around doing whatever they want. Right. Um, that's, um, that's a huge problem. A lot of lateral movement. Um, and that seems to be the, the bigger issue, right? Exactly. So it sounds great. But I imagine the notion of this, of just sort of presuming that the network is bunk and you can't trust anything is sort of terrifying to people. <laughs> I mean, is it really possible to to make this kind of uh, access and communication so secure outside of, you know, a perimeter thing that this is, you can reasonably disregard what most people have been doing for the past decades. Yes, this is Evan. I'm going to take that. I I think the answer is mostly yes. Um, You know, the the fact of the matter is that, yeah, it it is scary. And it's, that's because it is actually scary. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all agreed on that. (laughs) Yes. And, and, uh, but the good news is like, we, we kind of know how to do this already. You know, we have internet facing services and we know how to, we know how to securely serve up secure resources across the internet and, and secure them in a way, um, where, you know, the network between you and the resources is transparent from a security perspective. Uh, VPNs, uh, famously do this, SSL websites, things like this, um, is what we consider quote internet security. Uh, so, you know, in Zero Trust, we kind of advocate, well, we already know how, how to do this you know, internet-grade security, let's just apply it across the board um, and use automation as a, a key enabler to, in order to do that. Okay, I want to come back to the automation thing in a minute, Evan. Um, Doug, talk to me a little bit then about the notion of trust. I mean, this, is, this model is obviously going to start people, force people to start having some, like, it's scary. We're okay, it's scary. So now what to do with is scary and some uncom- possibly uncomfortable or at least un unasked questions before about their in terms of their organizations um, and their approach to security. So talk to me then about your uh, your notion of trust in this context. Like, how do you talk about trust now that you've sort of blown open the traditional you know, perimeter model? Sure. Um, so trust, I think, is kind of interesting. And remember when uh, when Evan and I started on the book, um, you know, it's called like zero trust networks. But if you start reading through the content, it's like all about how do I manage the trust in my network? Um, so it's actually just, you know, that's, that's what we're constantly thinking about is like, who do we trust? Why do we trust them? And do we have enough trust for them? One of the things I find interesting, at least when I think about like how I would want to build a secure network is my goal is not to remove people's access. It's to kind of help distribute the problem and get enough eyes on who I trust and should I continue to trust them over time. So it's kind of like that, you know, trust but verify approach. So um, you, you mentioned so, access or, you know, your people's ability to do their jobs. I mean, some someone might be able to argue that this just takes the problem of locking, you know, things down too much and putting it in a different context. Like you could still, you know, in the book, you guys write that 
the level of trust defines essentially a lower limit on the robustness, uh, you know, the robustness of your security protocols. And so it's wise to essentially trust as little as possible. And and so, you know, one could argue you could still end up in that situation where you, you, know, you have so little trust to ha- have that trade off with security that you could still be impacting people's jobs. So what's how are you how do you look at that trade off? Um, maybe Evan, that's one that you could could take. Sure. Um, that, that's a really interesting trade off. And, um, you know, big thanks to Google who uh, wrote a portion of our book for us and some of their experiences that uh, they've had in building these kinds of networks. And um, they've had some really interesting experiences and, and kind of, you know, very, very large migration efforts to, uh, to these low trust networks. And, you know, it involves kind of a lot of auditing beforehand and, and, and being very careful about the implementation. Um, you know, you'll craft policies on a case-by-case basis and turn them in logging mode only so that you're aware of who's going to be blocked before you actually block them. And you also uh, need to be very careful with, you know, kind of the policies that you put. A lot of times somebody sitting in an office might say, oh, yeah, well, it's easy, you know, certainly somebody in, in California should not be, con- that was in California, you know, six hours ago, should not be connecting from London. Um, except it's about that long to fly there. And sometimes you have these things in real life um, come up. So you have to be very careful about how you craft the policy. And additionally, you have to provide kind of these relief valves so that if somebody does uh, hit a problem or, or get their access denied when it shouldn't be, that they have an easy way to kind of mitigate that and, and, and regain their access without having to go through, jump through a bunch of hoops. And so, I, I mean, is this partly where the automation comes in or... You know, because you, you guys talk about this automation as an enabler in the book. Um, you know, there's a lot of tweaking. It sounds like a lot of knob tweaking, maybe, and adjusting in there. But I, I'd love to kind of dive into the automation side. And then I want to back up to some more detailed things around uh, different areas that you guys have identified in the book. Doug, do you want to, are you, who wants to field the automation question? <laughs> this is Doug. I'll, I'll give my thought. And maybe Evan can give his thought because sometimes he has uh, a better, more nuanced idea than I do. Okay. Um, so I guess my thought here is... When we talk about automation being an enabler, I think the key thing we're thinking in our mind is we want to have a secure API for each, like, let's let's assume we're working in like a company, right, with engineering teams. Like each engineering team should be able to define um, the security policy that their individual service actually needs to function, right? And so we kind of distribute that problem out amongst them, amongst a bunch of engineering teams. But then we take all those policies and we push them into some like secure infrastructure that actually implements that policy. So this isn't just a crazy idea we do. This is like how I understand Google's BeyondCorp stuff works, right? Like they needed or they wanted to get rid of their VPNs. They wanted to still have a lot of secure policies. So what they built for themselves was like a shared um, access gateway is what they call it. But they gave each engineering team and a, uh, what should we call it, a, a DSL for defining like each of their security policies, but the shared access gateway is the thing that's actually implementing the policy. And mm-hmm. then they layer on top of that, like kind of just broad reaching um, policy for the entire organization. So um, you're, the automation or the ability for you to like programmatically define your um, your policy and your enforcement, like allows you to give people a lot more access. And so, What's I mean, your thoughts, Evan? Yeah, this, let me jump in before you do, Evan, and ask, is it essentially, is, is it in a way the same at least some of the same principles around sort of um, configuration management and tools like Chef and, and Puppet and those kinds of things where you have sort of a, a storage central notion of what your policies and, and your configuration should be. And it's, you know, you're able to update that more and then you're able to push that out as needed and you can automate that essentially. Yep, exactly. I think that's like the, the huge benefit, right, is once you start capturing all this policy and it's change over time and code. You can do a lot more advanced uh, security policy or security enforcement in your network 
than you would do with like the traditional, like someone has to go and open a ticket and poke a hole. And, and, you know, the current state of the world is whatever we happen to see in our like enforcement mechanisms. Okay, great. Evan, I was, I kind of jumped in on you there. So no, that's no problem. I mean, Doug, Doug covered it pretty well. I, you know, I, I think the key is kind of having that policy definition in code so, and something that you can kind of use to programmatically generate kind of enforcement rules. And, and, and those enforcement rules can vary based on the underlying platform or, or condition. Um, but the key is that they're, they get to be generated by a computer. Um, the, the, one of the really important things this opens up is, is the ability to rapidly change uh, the enforcement rules. So do you say, you know, this, this thing should be able to talk to this other thing, you know, thing A and thing B, um, thing A can move around as much as it likes, and that security policy can follow it very, very quickly because the entire it, the installation of the enforcement mechanisms is completely automated. Uh, so it, it gives it it kind of lends the way to very, very highly dynamic policy um, as opposed to kind of the more static policy we see in perimeter networks. Yeah, static and pretty brittle, right? And that's where you start getting into like a million little firewall exceptions, right? And you just yeah, can't even keep I, up, right? Yeah, and the management overhead and, and all kinds of other uh, pains come from that. Interesting. Cool. I hadn't even kind of caught the parallels to that stuff when I was reading up on it. So let me ask you this. What what were some of the issues you all ran into implementing this yourselves at PagerDuty? Um, so I'll, I'm Evan. I'll take that one. Um, you know, uh, Doug had dropped in after, so I think he probably did a little more of the heavy lifting on that implementation than I did. Um, but, uh, you know, the biggest problem was kind of how do you roll this thing out in production without completely burning down the world? You know, we're, we're going from, you know, services which are encrypted here and there with their own encryption mechanisms and literally slipping authentication and encryption underneath them uh, without ever taking them down and, and, uh, or taking a maintenance window or anything like that. That was probably the largest challenge. And it involved um, some configuration dances across our production infrastructure in order to kind of incrementally um, flip things on. And it was a lot of logging and auditing beforehand in order to ensure that you could, we had kind of all the rules set up appropriately and, and we weren't going to turn something off that we didn't mean to. Yeah. Doug, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah. So I think the thing Evan's alluding to is um, because of PagerDuty's uh, particular like deployment across multiple cloud providers, um, we needed to do our own like uh, network level encryption for every communication flow. Mm. Um, so the the way we actually implemented that was kind of fun, right? Like this is Evan's idea that I got the, the pleasure to implement, um, which is we did a host-to-host IPsec-based mesh network across different cloud providers. Yeah. And that was, you know, it's, it's known tech, right? It's not something new we had to build, um, but it certainly is not like commonly deployed tech. Um, yeah. So it tended to involve a lot of like digging into source, like Linux kernel source or like, uh, you know, other projects and, and understanding what they were doing under the covers so that we could, you know, confidently roll this out. But yeah, they've been I remember running you guys that. talking about that at, uh, at one of the Velocity conferences. I thought that was one of the more unique aspects of, of the solution you came up with. Yeah. And I think the thing that's neat about it is like, you know, when I when we started writing this book and thinking about it, like the big question in my mind is like, would I tell someone else to go do that on their own network? Because it was a very different idea to do. And I feel like the the kind of learning from that is maybe I would tell them to do that. But even if it isn't like roll out an IPsec page mesh network, I think there's some like kind of truisms in that network design. And one of them, I think, is that, uh, you know, like some companies, when they talk about like network encryption, they say this should be like purely an application level concern. And we'll just pull in like the OpenSSL library and every app will have to like implement its own TLS. And that's how we'll secure our network. And I think there are some like fundamental problems with um, first off, you're like trusting 
the application to store like these critical secrets, like private keys and things no, like that. Not good. And so it's, it's better to like say, we're going to separate that, right? Like this should really be an operating system level concern. Um, you kind of see that with companies like uh, Lyft, I know does it, Airbnb does it, where they have like these little sidecar uh, proxies that run on every host. And so your application talks to a local proxy, which then handles the network um, communication. That's one way to do it. It uses TLS. And if you're more comfortable with that, you can do that. We liked, you know, using IPsec and the Linux kernel because it also does that functionality. Mm -hmm. uh, the other kind of key thing that I think was a little difficult and tricky, and if I were to, like, give anyone advice uh, in their own network as they're growing, is, like, the longer you delay um, putting in these types of, like, policy capturing mechanisms, the harder and more complex it's going to be. So, yeah, you know, when you're a startup, it's like, what should you do first? I think you should, like, try to capture policy, like, way up front. Yeah, not always front of mind from a startup standpoint, right? right. Um, so you've sort of teed up my next question for me and answered a bit of it. So, you know, I'll, and maybe you already have the answer to this, but so for, a, for an organization that's even possibly considering this, you know, what is your advice on how to get started? It sounds to me you're saying try to start capturing policy first. Because I mean, you might be like, like at PagerDuty, you guys were in a kind of a sweet situation in that you had, you, you probably had leadership buy-in for this. Like you all had kind of had to do this given situation you were in, but a lot of other organizations aren't necessarily going to be in that position. And so what are your suggestions for people even, you know, contemplating something like this? Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. I think the first place to start is, as Doug said, to start collecting policy and understanding what should be there. Um, once you know it should be there, you can start to understand what is there that is unexpected or should not be. And you can start to kind of build up this list and slowly, slowly, slowly move things from, you know, kind of blacklist to whitelist mode or saying like, we will only allow these things known on this list. And once you can get to that whitelist mode, it kind of becomes self-maintaining in a way. Um, as far as business justification goes, I mean, it, it really kind of depends on on the use case. There, there are two, I think, two kind of different modes of a zero trust network that we've seen. One is the client mode and one is the server mode where the client mode describes client connectivity to backend services, corporate services and things like that. So think like mobile workforces, people working from coffee shops, um, people bringing their phones into their office need to access email, things like that. And then the other side of the coin is kind of the server deployment where um, you think like server to server workloads inside the data center, uh, so to speak. And depending on your business use case and, and what your problem you're trying to solve, you, you might choose one one or the other of those to, to start first. And, and it kind of uh, diverges from there in terms of what the implementation would look like. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned you've seen some some of this out in the wild already. Um, what are the options then, tech, you know, technically speaking, is this very much a roll your own kind of world for people right now? Or are things, you know, are sort of tools and patterns and even, you know, either startups or other kinds of things starting to emerge on this front? Yeah, so it's Doug. Um, so there are definitely projects out there that uh, I feel like kind of echo some of the ideas. So um, Lyft has this project called Envoy, um, which is, you know, that local like sidecar TLS system. Um, I know Airbnb has another one, and I think it's called like uh, Synapse and Neuron or something like that. Um, but again, similar idea, like, you know, kind of distributing out the, the encryption stuff. Um, one of the nice things about doing the book is we've run across companies that uh, are starting to try to echo what Google did with Beyond Corp. So we ran across one recently called ScaleFT. Um, is there any other ones, Evan? Vitter on the client side. Vitter on the clientation. Yeah. So there's a there's a few companies out there that are that are trying to get us towards this world where um where your policy is much closer to like your workload. So what have you heard as the biggest 
reasons people aren't doing this? I mean, you've been talking to people who are doing this. Are you talking to people who are like, oh, that sounds great, but there's no way in hell we're ever going to do that? I mean, what are what are the you know what are the roadblocks for people that you feel are the most common? Yeah, um, I've I've actually been exploring that very problem recently. I think there's a few factors. Number one is just the lack of really strong commercial software to do this. It's very, very far from a plug and play solution. It's very, it's very much kind of the state is roll your own and cobble some things together and glue some pieces together and, and, and get it running, you know, um, it's kind of more just very much like an architecture uh, at this point in time. Um, so that's one, you know, people have a hard time this, uh, you know, justifying all the time them to, to roll the solution. Another problem is that the idea is just such a far departure um, from what people are used to in terms of the perimeter model. Mm-hmm. It, people have been doing this for a very long time. And the longer you've been doing it, you know, the longer it's kind of ingrained in your head. And and it takes kind of a, a an out-of-the-box approach, you know, a turn the lights off and back on kind of thing um, in order to, to kind of get it and, and see the value and, and connect the idea to physical reality. Um, without the software being there, it's really difficult for people to kind of envision how they might implement a network in in this kind of hostile environment that we describe. Uh, so I think uh, those are pretty much the two largest problems in adoption that we're seeing right now. I'm trying to kind of figure out what we can do, you know, to make that a little more palatable. That was Evan, right? Yes. God, get, get at it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll ask Doug, you, is there a middle ground to help people make that jump? Or are you, is it like sort of mind-bendingly science fiction paradigm shift to get from, you know, perimeter to, to zero trust? Sure. Um, so I feel like there is a middle ground if you're willing to accept like vendor lock-in is one thing I would say. So um, I actually think like if you tilt your head the right way, you could argue that Amazon security groups are kind of like a shade of a zero trust network in that you don't try to arrange, you don't, or sorry, you could, if you want to arrange your network into like nicely crafted subnets, or you could just start tagging hosts with certain like security groups and using those to define policy. So if you're on, you know, um, AWS, like do a security group per role, use that everywhere to define access, that'll like get you part of the way there. And you kind of leave yourself open to um, extending out to different providers later. Evan, anything you think on that front? Um, that's a good question. I think that um, for us, the way that we did it was we kind of started small. So I said, okay, first, like, let's just put a regular IP policy uh, in place. But that IP policy is going to be automated uh, back to my code, uh, which is, you know, that automation is enabler we talked before. And once they kind of got that in and got it vetted, um, we, we turned the knob up on granularity um, we spread it, we spread that granularity to more places and eventually turned up the encryption stuff. So I guess uh, the point I'm trying to make is that it's totally acceptable to adopt one or two of the principles that we're setting forth here and then just kind of add the add the rest of them, you know, uh, when the time is appropriate. Uh, it doesn't have to be like a whole hog uh, adventure. Uh, additionally, you know, you, it doesn't have to be 100% of your infrastructure. You know, you can take the parts of your infrastructure that can benefit from it the most and do it there first. Right. That makes sense. It, the, you you know, you sort of brought up something else that, that triggered a question. I could see people possibly having um, complaints or concerns around auditing and compliance um, and those sorts of things. Talk to me a little bit about whether this helps or hinders on that front. This is Doug. Thanks, Doug. Um, so I actually saw a talk. I want to say it was like a DevOps Day Chicago where someone literally gave a talk about how... Um, capturing their policy in code and using like DevOpsy type stuff um, help them with auditing, right? Because mm-hmm. now you don't just say like, 
oh, these people can go into this UI and poke it. And we have this ticket over here that may or may not reflect the actual change that was occurred. Now you can look at that code and you can say, like, this is the change. I have the, you know, the version control history that tells me who made it and who signed off on it. So I would tend to argue that, like, you are better positioned to more easily handle an audit um, when you start like applying these concepts than doing it the more traditional way. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. That was a total like <laughs> I knew what the answer to the question was when I asked it kind of question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. <laughs> Sneaky, sneaky. So similarly, in terms of like dealing with incidents or, you know, like when you do have a problem, you you know, this is always the awkward question. Like, you don't have to tell me something you can't tell me. But what's your experience or what have you seen with other organizations and this approach in terms of dealing with incidents when they arise? I don't know if there's enough of a (laughs) of a group of people doing it yet to say much on that. But sure. Well, I think that, you know, first and foremost, it's going to slow down any potential breach like dramatically. You know, it's not going to be, oh my God, you know, like we left the server unlocked or or we did something or other and they got in this one place and now they're in all these other places. Right. This is something that that you really don't kind of see happening in, with this kind of architecture because the policies are so granular and the movement is so limited. Right. Um, one one thing that thing that you really kind of gain in terms of responsibility um, in these situations of the zero trust network is that a zero trust network is is going to have very very robust kind of auditing and logging across the board. So when policies get changed programmatically or anything happens like that, you're going to have a record of it. Uh, when users log in or different network flows are authorized and authenticated, you're going to have a record of that too. Um, so any kind of communication going across the network, you generally have very very good visibility into with a zero trust network because you have to. Um, so when when and if something when something does happen, not only can is is the progression of that attack uh, very slow, but also you have very very good visibility to exactly uh, what occurred and when and how. Yeah, I mean that's generally the. I mean I, I mean maybe that was sort of a softbally question, but that's the general premise, right? Is you don't have someone get in, you know, phone home, have lateral movement, and you don't even know what's you, as far as far as you're concerned, it looks like normal traffic, right? Yeah, exactly. And and some of the more robust zero trust networks, like Google's implementation, um, you know, has what they call trust inference uh, engine, what we call tr- just a regular trust engine, um, which you know can take logins and, and 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 access requests across various systems and correlate them to score trust. And so even if a system is compromised, you know, the the kind of abnormality of the requests and things being made as the attack progresses um, can indicate to the system that something's wrong, and you can even lock off that access proactively. I think this is kind of like a this is Doug. This is a key point in this type of network design is it's not just about enforcement. It's also about continual monitoring of changes of state. And so when you when you start building those systems, you've you've built yourself a way to detect problems, but also do like really great forensics. And you know the the ultimate benefit is when you make that feedback loop of my trust in some system is directly driven off of log traffic of what that system is currently doing. And I'm going to try to detect anomaly. So the anomaly detection was what just sort of popped into my mind. Can you give a more, possibly a more concrete example of what someone might be looking for in terms of either traffic or user or device kind of data? Yeah, sure, Doug. Um, So I know that some organizations might do stuff where um, if you log into the network from a potentially risky region of the world, well, then we are going to knock down your authorization level until we see you physically in person to validate that um, access. Uh, another one I think I've heard of is some organizations might have policies where like, you have to go visit the like 
the corporate headquarters on a regular cadence. Otherwise, your your trust level gets knocked down. Um, so kind of like fairly simplistic policies that aren't doing like the, you know, the, the fancy like machine learning. Uh, this looks anomalous, but mm-hmm. really basic stuff that could like help um, add an additional layer of uh, security. Any thoughts, Evan? <laughs> yeah. You guys are doing my job um, for me now. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, that, that, that's, you know, stuff that we see very frequently today. And I think that, you know, with zero trust network, having having all of the enforcement layers uh, programmatically defined opens the possibility for highly, highly dynamic uh, response in terms of what you will or, or will not authorize. Um, and I think that that's super powerful, you know. So now where we went from a world where, um, you know, maybe you have a different system which pages somebody when they that sees something suspicious, who then has to go um, investigate it and then maybe translate that into new rules. We, we have the opportunity to kind of monitor all of the authentic- user authentication traffic. We have the ability to monitor all the network flows between backend services and correlate anomalies in there um, to kind of things that might be going on in the real world. Uh, so, you know, for instance, a user which doesn't normally access source code after hours is all of a sudden accessing source code after hours. And they're not just doing... They're not just accessing source code after hours, they're also accessing payroll systems after hours. And maybe that's kind of a little suspicious. And you might, at that point, uh, the system might choose to drag that user through a couple extra factors of authentication in order to validate that it is actually them. And that goes back to kind of like usability problems that we were talking about earlier. You know, you don't really want to get too strict and, and just flat out deny them. It's better to kind of just escalate the amount of authentication that you bring the user through or the system through um, in order to gain confidence or trust in that particular session. And if you can't, then the last resort is to just block it right out. Yeah, cool. I have a closing question I want to get to. But before before that, I mean, is there anything else that you guys that I didn't ask you that you desperately wanted me to ask you? So one of the things that was kind of going through my mind as Evan was talking, this is Doug, by the way, is we didn't really like cover kind of the idea that we call like network agent for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, but Google kind of echoes this too, right? Which is a lot of times nowadays we talk about like, is a device allowed to access resources or is a user allowed to access resources? And I don't know that like as an industry, we ever really consider those two together to be a thing that we are authorizing. And what I think, do you mean? Like, um, so like Google gave a really good example here, right? Like they're a big company. They have a lot of different um, devices and they might have different policy in their network based on a completely authentic user using a public kiosk than a mm, completely okay. authentic user using their personal laptop. Right, um, okay. And so I think like the, the sooner we like recognize that like the union of those two things is the thing we're authenticating, not like a device or a user. I think we get like to better policy and get a, a clearer picture of how to like craft the, the security in our network. Yeah. And it's a, that's a great point. And it's not something you could have done in a perimeter kind of situation, really, right? Uh, right. It tends to be like people want to treat them orthogonally, but I don't think they can be. That principle also goes a really long way in terms of guarding against, you know, simple real world attacks like, you know, credential theft. You know? Somebody steals your credentials is, and maybe even, you know, ports your SMS number to get your two-factor SMS. But mm-hmm. unless they have also stolen your device, um, then the attack is sorted. Right. So that's sort of, it's almost like, inherent three factor, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Okay. That was Doug, right? That was Doug, yeah. Okay, good. Evan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Evan, was there anything else, you know, that you sort of wanted to chime in on or that you felt we didn't cover? No, I, I gave that little last comment and I think that was, was probably about it. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, so then this is my uh, this is my closing question that I ask for everyone who's uh, brave enough to join me on the podcast, which is one of the things that I've been trying to do with this with the podcast and with things we're doing at a rally around like the conference and whatnot is sort of highlight the work that defenders do um, in a in an industry that is incredibly uh, offense and breaker focused, or at least you know sort of a lot of shiny syndrome there and. As, as we were starting to put some of this stuff together, I started realizing that all the people I was talking with had these sort of secret superpowers that they either, whether they were aware of them or they were shy about it or they didn't even know. And um, so we've had some really interesting ones on the show so far. And I'm curious uh, what your secret superpowers are. I'm going to be really mean to Evan and make you go first. So Doug gets to think about it longer. Secret superpower. Yeah. Oh, man. Can, can you give me like some examples here? Like what, what in, in what context? Um. Well, it's mostly in, I guess, I suppose, a professional context, but you don't have to have one. Um, it could be personal. I had someone on recently whose secret superpower is reading a room. Um, <laughs> like ever since he was a little kid, he had a family business and he would always go into the front of the house, as it were, the family business and sort of like start figuring. And he was he got really good at figuring out what the heck was going on. Um, and he ended up in uh, in sort of more uh, human factor, safety, science, social science, like sort of seeing the story behind the story of, of what's happening mm -hmm. in, in sort of safety critical systems. So so his secret superpower was being able to read a room, um, which helped him both in his personal life and his professional life. So I guess okay. that's, that's one example. Okay, yeah. So I, I guess I've never kind of cited this as a superpower before. But um, I guess my superpower would be um, the ability to take things that are largely very technical and relate them to common everyday situations uh, that people can understand without being technical. So your one your secret superpower is translation. Analogies, yes. yes. Excellent. Okay. And Doug, what's yours? Oh, what is my secret superpower? Um I would say that probably a thing that has served me very well as like an engineer is I've gotten very good at reading other people's code and kind mm -hmm. of quickly getting an idea of what it's doing. Um especially when you're doing like crazy network design and stuff that other folks haven't done before, like being able to dig into completely unfamiliar um, code bases and make sense of it quickly is is incredibly valuable, not just for debugging a problem, but also understanding like why something behaves the way it does. Um, oh. People often complain about like lack of documentation, and while I agree that like uh, engineers should document their code more, I think like if you're working with open source software, you can go read the code. And it's it's not very good documentation, but it is certainly accurate. <laughs> so, so you're like a technical archaeologist. Yes. I've done that way too many times. <laughs> I just made that up, but I think it's a thing. So you can now I put, think it's an accurate <laughs> <laughs> You can now, you can put it in your LinkedIn profile and I'll just say you're welcome. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> Um, well, that this was great. Uh, and as we were alluding to this, in case people haven't figured it out, you all are writing a book on this. Um, I'll include some links and other things at the bottom of a post we'll put up on our site around it if people want to dig in more from there. And uh, just thank you guys so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Courtney. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash. Evan is at Evan2645. And Doug is at Doug Barth. You can subscribe to the Security Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud, so you never miss an episode. Mm -hmm.